I'm Lindsay Claiborne. And I'm Mumu Shu, and you are listening to Beyond the Microscope. Hi, everyone. We are back with another episode. Today's guest is Joy Wolfram. She is an assistant professor at the Mayo Clinic who leads the nanomedicine and extracellular vesicles lab. Welcome, Joy. Thank you for having me. Great. So um, what is it that you do? What is the nanomedicine and extracellular vesicles lab? So we actually develop nanoparticles for treating life-threatening diseases. So for instance, cancer and uh, various types of organ damage. That seems like a, a massive undertaking. <laughs> how, do, how do you even, where do you start? Uh, how do you narrow it down? Where do you focus? Well, so our specific focus is on biological nanoparticles. And nanoparticles in general are like these tiny cars that can travel in the blood and deliver medication specifically to diseased tissues. But sort of what we do is that we collect these nanoparticles from the body and they can be found in urine, saliva and the blood. And within the body, they're sort of used for communication between cells. So let's say that your cells in the stomach, they want to send a message to your brain they would put this message inside this biological nanoparticle that is called an extracellular vesicle. And so they really play a major role in in cell communication. So imagine what therapeutic benefits this could have if we could tap into sort of the body's um, text message system. And that's exactly what we're trying to do. So we're collecting um, these biological nanoparticles from the body. We can then load them with medication and then inject them back inside the body and they can then serve as these tiny cars um, to deliver this medication um, to the correct location and because they are collected from our bodies it's easier for them to navigate inside the body and also they won't be recognized sort of as something foreign um, so we're very excited about about utilizing this sort of approach how i am notoriously bad at biology i just forgive me for this but how do you begin, how do you even collect nanoparticles to begin with? And then how do you go about, you know, injecting them with, you know, even medicine? I just Yeah, those are great questions. And actually, one of the main challenges in working with these biological nanoparticles is that in the past, we haven't had good tools to collect them. So if we try to collect them by, for instance, ultracentrifugation, where we really spin them really quickly to sort of get them separated um, from the rest of the things in the biological fluid, what's happened is that that has actually damaged those biological nanoparticles and we've lost most of them um, in the collection process. So what we've done is we've developed this new um, or optimized this new method of collecting um, the biological nanoparticles from the body and this is based on filtration. So we use several types of filters to get a specific size of nanoparticles and it's a very gentle technique so we're actually not damaging the particles so we're retaining their biological properties and at the same time we're also recovering most of those particles so we're not losing them in the collection process. How um, you, you sort of t- touched on this a little bit but how I feel like this kind of technology and, and, and what tools you are using has changed drastically in a short amount of time. Has this project and this task sort of only recently become feasible or has it just become a lot easier? I feel like technology must play a very big part in what you do. Absolutely. And if we think about sort of synthetic nanoparticles, 
Um, the first synthetic nanoparticle to get approval for cancer was in 1995. And this was a really, really simple sort of lipid-based nanoparticle with a cancer drug inside. And, you know, since the 1990s, there's been a lot of um, new research and we've been able to create more complex nanoparticles and now even been able to collect these biological nanoparticles in large quantities. And a lot of the new technologies that enable us to characterize these biological nanoparticles, what RNA uh, do they have inside, what types of proteins, what types of lipids. And those type of technologies open up new avenues for us to explore for therapeutic applications. So it's an exciting time. So what, what kind of things can we, can we you know, address or solve or, or possibly cure using um, these techniques? Great question. So um, one of the things we can address is cancer. Because, uh, you know, when we inject cancer drugs into the body, they are very nonspecific. So they go everywhere in the body. And this, of course, leads to a lot of side effects for patients. And we don't get really a lot of uh, sort of therapeutic effects. But if we can then put these cancer drugs into the biological nanoparticles that sort of have a target that they typically go to inflame tissue, for instance, and cancers are usually inflamed, then we can really concentrate those cancer drugs inside the tumor, reducing the side effects and increasing the, the effects of the drug on killing the cancer cells. And in addition to cancer, uh, a, a really big application is actually regenerative medicine. So we can actually take these biological nanoparticles from stem cells and they have similar properties as the stem cells. So hopefully in the future we can use them to try to reduce inflammation, um, to promote uh, regeneration, and to protect cells um, that are damaged um, from dying. How far away are we from something that I could be prescribed by a doctor? Exactly. So, you know, what most people don't know that is that this is a really, really long process. So on average, it takes 12 years sort of to get something from the lab to your medicine cabinet. Right. And it also costs around $2.7 billion. Oh, no big deal then. And <sighs> wow. yeah, the reason the costs are so high is actually because 99% of the drugs fail. So the 1% that doesn't fail, that actually makes it to the patients, then has to pay for all of those failed drugs. So it is a really, really difficult and long process, but, you know, we don't give up because we think about, you know, the potential to help people who are today dying from these uh, diseases. So, so the mission is so important for us that we keep working, even though the odds are against us. Um, specifically for the biological nanoparticles, you know, my team is now working on submitting um, an IND, which is an investigational new drug application to the Food and Drug Administration, which is the organization in the United States that really um, controls all of this and makes sure that anything we inject into patients is safe. And this could take, you know, anything from one year to five years to get approved, even longer. But the primary application that we're going after is actually injecting something locally, so sort of into the skin because this is uh, the first step before you inject something into the blood. So it's safer to try to inject these uh, biological nanoparticles into the skin. And the applications we're looking at, for instance, is you know hair growth, 
for people. Um, there's women that you know have this have a disease where they lose their hair early on, and so those are the sort of easiest applications and then when we've shown that it's safe and that we can really manufacture large quantities then we can move on to to diseases that are more life-threatening. So I want to back up a little bit uh, and kind of ask you how did you get here? Um, so I've always been very interested in in science I was always you know curious as a child and I remember um, one specific event from my childhood I think I was around 11 years old and and my dog got a skin infection and so we rushed her to the vet. It was pretty serious. And, you know, at the vet I saw um, them taking these skin swabs and putting them into these bacterial culture dishes. And so I thought that was absolutely fascinating and they explained that that was to find the appropriate antibiotic and so on. So I did actually ask the vet if I could take some of these, you know, unused bacterial plates home and she was you know very hesitant but in the end she uh, did hand me some of these uh, bacterial culture plates and I went home very excited went to my room and and sort of set up a miniature microbiology lab and uh, one of the first uh, experiments I did was go to our fridge because I knew we had all the food in there and I swabbed different shelves um, and in a few sort of two to three days, they had like um, the bacterial dishes were full of different colors and shapes. And then sort of I called my family to come and look at it. And they were horrified. You know, we have all this bacteria in our right, fridge. Did they wipe down the whole fridge? <laughs> yes. But of, yes. But of course, bacteria, they're everywhere. We right. just can't see them. But that was uh, that was very sort of exciting. And it really showed me like that science is amazing. You have this whole world. Um, that is there, but you can't see it. And um, so that led me to later then go study a, a bachelor in biology in Finland, um, where I'm originally from. And then during my undergrad, I actually applied to this uh, Amgen Scholars Program, which is this hands-on lab experience for students who wouldn't sort of otherwise have the opportunity to get exposure to research as, at an early career stage. And so it really gives undergrads around the world um, financial support to do a summer research project in biomedical sciences. And I applied there uh, specifically to Karolinska Institute in Sweden and was really lucky to get accepted. And that program really sort of solidified my passion for translational research. And um, I did let them know that I wanted to do cancer research because a lot of my friends had lost their parents to cancer. And I had seen that uh, sort of struggle that they went through. So then through this summer program with Amgen, um, I studied cancer cells and how they migrate. And, you know, since then I was, you know, convinced that this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And and I, I, I keep coming back to this, but like it must have been, you know, things have changed so fast in the past couple of years that what you were working with when you first got into a lab is like archaic almost so what you're working with now and what technology is available to you exactly and the interesting thing about cancer is that the resources and uh, that for instance the u.s government has spent on cancer research in the past 60 years over a hundred billion dollars and there's been so much effort and time put into this field but unfortunately when it comes to patient survival 
for certain types of cancer, like pancreatic cancer, there hasn't really been any progress. So what I wanted to do was go and do a PhD in something completely different. And at the time, nanomedicine was sort of the next big thing. Um, So I applied to a hospital in Texas that they had just opened up a new department to study, you know, nanotechnology uh, and do translational research that could really impact patients. And then for me, seeing how um, this advanced nanotechnology was uh, or could have the potential to change medicine really showed me, you know, that that we made a lot of advancements, but still we need something new um, to really try to target these aggressive cancers. And what... What about cancer? I mean, I guess there's there's multiple, many, many different types. What about it makes it so difficult? I mean, we've spent so much money in research and, and sort of drug development. And, and what is it that makes it so hard? Well, I think there's many different things. You know, we tend to think of cancer as one disease, but it's actually so many uh, different types of diseases that sort of need their own personalized medicine. And, you know, we can have two tumors in the same patient that are so different. Um, so I think it comes down to really needing a, um, sp- a specific approach to how we treat even tumors within the same patient. Um, and another thing is what I already mentioned is that we don't have a way to specifically get the cancer drugs to the tumors. So we're just injecting them and they're going absolutely everywhere. So I think this um, inability to direct the cancer drugs where we want them to go it is one of the reasons um, that some cancers are still uh, really difficult to treat. Is there something like I've asked this question a couple different ways before with other other interviews, but is there a, a wish list thing or a tech that you want to have to be invented or something that would make your job easier or better or move it forward? Like, is there some magical thing that if it appeared tomorrow, you'd make great strides or you wish you had in front of you? Um, Well, that's a really interesting question. Um, If there is a magic thing, well, I think, uh, you know, we're getting so much information all the time and there's so much technology being out there. So if we could have something that could really quickly tell us the most relevant information, sort of a magic wand, um, I think that would be really important. And that has to do with sort of data analysis and processing all this data that is coming out and, and trying to really find what's what's relevant. So I think that would be an interesting... And help, interesting. help you narrow down, like, where you focus, right? Exactly, narrow down. So what do you... When you say sort of what to focus on, what do you... I'm really curious now. What do you mean, kind of... What is it that you're looking for? Well, you know, every day there's new discoveries, for instance, with these biological nanoparticles, and there's just so much information out there that it's difficult to to really find the most relevant information really quickly. And the same with data. There's so much clinical data and preclinical data that is being produced, and we don't necessarily have the, mo- the best tools um, to analyze that data to um, take advantage of it in the best way. What do you measure? Like, when Are you running like practical experiments? Are you running theoretical experiments? Like what is your sort of your day-to-day work look like? So we are doing biological experiments, um, so not a lot of theoretical experiments, but we do have collaborations. 
So one of the themes in my lab is that we want to have a transdisciplinary approach. So we do want to combine different disciplines and we believe that by doing that, we can come up with the most innovative solutions. So how can we combine, you know, biology with chemistry, with medicine, with mathematics um, and so on. But of course, I, my lab is small. It's seven people, so we can't specialize in everything. So if we do need those other um, that other knowledge, it's a good way uh, to reach out to um, people around the world to collaborate and work together to come up with these uh, new solutions. What is a typical day like for you, if, the, if a typical day does exist? Well, uh, the amazing thing about, you know, my job is that there is no typical day. So every day looks very different. So I might be giving a talk at a conference, I could be in my office writing grants, writing manuscripts. I could be mentoring students. Um, some days I'm teaching a class. I could be brainstorming with my team, troubleshooting experiments. Um, you know, a lot of the time is also spent, you know, recruiting team members. We do do a lot of outreach events, and that's really cool to interact with the community and especially, you know, children and get them excited about science. So. Every day does look different, and, and that's what I really love about the job. It never gets boring. With the people that you pull into your lab and the people that you deal with, um, is it a diverse group of folks, or is it sort of a, is it a growing field? Is it a, a strange sort of out there on the edge field? Like, what, what's your, the community like, and is it becoming more popular, more uh, interesting to folks as, as technology improves? Yeah, well, I think that every lab should be diverse. I do try to uh, get a team that is diverse in many aspects, you know, from several different countries, uh, people with different uh, scientific backgrounds. And so I think um, regardless of what scientific discipline you're involved with, you should strive towards that diversity. And actually, I think it was a couple of days ago, there was a report that came out that was highlighted by Nature showing that diverse labs actually publish more publications and get more citations. Um, so that's something that, that I think everyone should do. So what, I guess, what, um, what gets you, so looking sort of forward ahead in the next five years, 10 years, what are you excited about or what, what new um, advancements do you see coming in the future that get you really excited? Um, well, there's a couple of things. Definitely, you know, my main goal for my career is to get something into the clinic that can benefit patients. Um, I'm very excited about regenerative medicine and what applications um, that could have, especially using these biological nanoparticles. But in addition to that, what I'm also excited about is, you know, developing the next generation of future leaders. So I'm passionate about mentoring and I think that's the most important uh, job of a scientist so to really see the people that come out of my lab succeed and start their own labs you know that will be interesting um, in the next 10 years and you know being a woman woman in my 20s um, so on a daily basis sort of I deal with people assuming that I'm not a leader and not a scientist so what I'm also passionate about is sort of changing the perception that people have um, in the next 10 years. And, and one, of the thing, one of the ways we do that is by being a role model, by interacting with the community and showing, you know, you don't have to be a white man and look like Einstein to be a scientist. So I would say it's, uh, 
those three things that inspire me is the scientific advancements in the biological nanoparticles and then mentoring and creating future leaders in science and then really changing the perception and promoting minorities in science. Do you feel like that's gotten better as we talk about Me Too and these sort of high-profile people, mostly men, have been called out for stuff? Do you feel there's a shift coming? I mean, Mumu and I talk about this a lot. Um, do, do you feel it in your own world, or have you sort of done a lot already on your own that it, it's not obvious to you? Um, I feel it's a good start, but there's a lot more work to be done. So I think it's definitely in, in the right direction. The general consensus now of sort of modifying yourself, you know, people putting microchips in their arms so they don't need to carry a key card to get into a building or your banking information. Do you think the sort of human tolerance for medical things, it's like, yeah, we'll just use, you know, uh, nanomedicine and, and we'll do this. It feels very sci-fi, but that the it's no longer as surreal and like out there as it used to be. Exactly. So a lot of the times when people used to hear, you know, nanotechnology, they thought about, you know, tiny nanobots that would invade your body and your brain. Um, but the reality, like I mentioned, is that, you know, our bodies are full of nanoparticles. So it's actually something very natural to us. Um, so it has a lot to do with how, you know, it's how we scientists communicate with the public. And that is also why it's important to, to go out there and talk about your science so, so you don't get this sort of misunderstanding that nanotechnology is, is something bad and, and not something natural. Is this the kind of technology that you could use a version of for everyone suffering from a particular form of cancer? Or is this the kind of medicine that would be tailored to be um, aligned with your own DNA or your own genetics? Um, in that kind of way is it where do you is this which direction does this go so that's a great question so we always want to find a balance where it can't be too expensive to change the nanoparticle for every single scenario um, but also we want to make it specific uh, so that we can easily target the disease so i think as we overcome some of these manufacturing challenges we can tailor these nanoparticles. For instance, we can change their shape based on the characteristics of a tumor. And by changing that shape, they can um, more easily get to the tumor and then destroy it. So um, I do think that there's a balance to be found. But um, of course, being more specific is usually better when it comes to targeting cancer. It's just fascinating that the potential that's there. Yes, it's very exciting. Um, so, so you mentioned um, Amgen's Amgen scholars um, and how you were um, a recipient of this this um, program. Can you um, do you still are you in touch with um, the program or are you still doing events with them or can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So actually, a few weeks ago, I went to this conference and I met this young lady. She was an undergraduate student. And she was sort of presenting the research she had done over the summer and she was really excited about it and, you know, she had amazing data. And then later it turns out that she was actually part of the Amgen Scholars program. And then for me, it was like 10 year, almost 10 years ago since I participated in that program. So it was really fantastic to interact with her and actually see the broad impact that the program is having sort of over several generations of scientists. And so I regularly do follow up and look at 
what's going on with the program. And I do know that now they have 24 host institutions involved and recently expanded to also Australia and Canada. Before that, they were already in Europe. Um, I attended the European program, um, of course, in the United States and then in Asia. And I think they've invested um, $74 million uh, over the past 16 years um, in the program. So that's very excited. That's very exciting. And I think around 4,000 undergraduates have gone through that program. Uh, that sounds amazing. I wish I knew about the program when I was always. <laughs> yeah, always. Um, well, um, Joy, that's all the questions that Lindsay and I have. Is there anything that we have not discussed that you would like to talk about? Well, I'd just like to say that if you are an undergrad student, then definitely um, apply. Uh, I think a lot of the programs um, are accepting applications. I think you have to apply by February and you can learn more by visiting amgenscholars.com or you can also follow um, Amgen on Twitter uh, at Amgen Foundation. And you can also follow me on Twitter. I post a lot of the scientific and outreach activities we do. So that's at Wolfram Joy. Um, well, Joy, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. This was a fascinating discussion. Yes, thank you for your fascinating questions. It was a pleasure being on the podcast. Thanks for sticking around to the end of the show. Help other people find this podcast by giving us a rating on iTunes. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Scope Podcast. Our theme music was composed by The Copy Cuts.